So we are in Micah. We finished chapter 2 last time. And I will try and not make such a hash of it this time. I was stumbling all over the place. So I apologize for that. According to the commentary that I've read, Micah is divided into three chunks. The first chunk, which we finished last week, is 1 and 2. This chunk is 3, 4, and 5. And the claim to fame on this chunk is that we have the prediction of the birth of the Messiah in Bethlehem. As I said before, Micah is a contemporary of Isaiah. He sounds a lot like Isaiah. So the well-versed in Isaiah, Micah should hold no terrors for you. So let's start off in chapter 3. And I said, Hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Nothing if not graphic, right? Having a prophet come through your town saying something like that to you would not be popular. And he will say to the leaders of Israel, you guys are the reason that you're going into exile. It's your fault. You didn't lead the people. You preyed on the people instead of leading them and ministering to them. And one of the things that happens, especially when you get a bureaucracy, and like it or not, the temple in Jerusalem was a bureaucracy. They had Levites that do stuff and hereditary priests and all that kind of thing. And we sort of get a sense of what it was like reading the Gospels, where Yeshua goes in there and periodically dukes it out with them for the same stuff that Micah is talking about here, which is to say, using their hereditary position as a vehicle to enrich themselves at the expense of the people. And I will gently suggest that we've got the same thing going on right now in Washington in lots of states where you have bureaucracies which are not hereditary per se, although they are sort of because if you grow up in Washington and you live in Washington and your daddy was a bureaucrat, you're probably going to be a bureaucrat. And, you know, you marry somebody who's the son or daughter of a bureaucrat. So it's a very closed community. And what winds up happening, as you remember, and those of you who have read your Bible, which all of you have, that God provides for the temple servants. The sacrifices come in and they get a certain chunk of it by right. Furthermore, you have cities which are reserved for Levites. So when the land was divided up under Joshua, there were Levite cities scattered throughout both banks of the Jordan. And the rules for a Levite city were somewhat different than the rules for a regular Israelite city. You know, the amount of land you have is different, smaller, because the Israelites were the agricultural ones and the Levites and the priests their job was government. They were to run the temple, run the tabernacle, be judges. So it was expected that they would be sustained from that. So God gives them a portion of the sacrifice. God gives them their own city. 
God doesn't have any problem when they're not on duty with them engaging in business. So the problem here is they have become greedy. And the amount that they get from their allotment doesn't satisfy them. You all remember the story of Hophni and Phinehas in 1 Samuel. Eli was the high priest. Samuel was sort of his young apprentice. And Hophni and Phinehas were corrupt, although Samuel is one of the most famous judges in all Israel. He's got two books named after him. But his sons were thoroughly corrupt. And what his sons would do as they were ministering in the tabernacle at that time, what was before the temple, the people would come in to offer their sacrifice. And in order to do that, you had to go through the priest because you can't just waltz in there and do your own sheep or goat or whatever. And these guys were saying, well, you know, I know what the scripture says we're supposed to get, but I'm going to take this piece because that's what I want. And oh, by the way, if you don't give it to me, you don't get to sacrifice. So what they've done is they've used their position to enrich themselves. And that's what Micah is talking about here in the beginning of chapter 3. These people have used their position to exploit the people that they are supposed to be ministering to. Isaiah says the same thing. Yeshua is going to say the same thing. And what I'm saying here is is a perennial problem with established bureaucracies. They always at some point devolve into that, which is why they periodically need to be sanded down and started fresh. That was the cause of the French Revolution. You had landed hereditary nobles and their bureaucrats in the church and they were oppressing the people and finally the people rose up and rebelled. Now the the French rebellion was not the same as ours because our basis was different. Ours was based on Torah, theirs was based on reason. So they disintegrated more quickly than we did. And you went off into the terror and Napoleon and all that kind of stuff, they became an empire. But the point I'm making here is this is typical and In the Bible and in Israel's economy, there are three voices. You have the voice of the priest and the Levites. And their job is to determine clean from unclean, holy from unholy, and to teach Torah. That's their job. They are a bureaucracy by definition. The next one that you have is the king. And the voice of the king is the voice of wisdom. So, for example, Proverbs is a kingly book of the Bible because it is the wisdom of the king. And the king has a different function than the priesthood has. By the way, that's where we get our model for our constitution. And then the third voice was the prophet. And the prophet was ad hoc. So the prophet could be anybody. Sometimes it was a woman. Most of the time it was a man. And what a prophet was is when Israel was starting to go off the rails, God would anoint somebody as a prophet and would send that person to Israel to walk in and grab the king by the stacking swivel, or in this case, grab the prophets by the stacking swivel and say, I'm going to talk and you're going to listen. God's not happy with what you're doing. And so the office of a prophet is to speak for God into the society. Of course, 
we're reading a prophet right now, so it's obviously the voice of a prophet here. But as I say, if you go to Proverbs or Ecclesiastes or any of those, you get the voice of a king, which is wisdom. And, of course, you've got Torah, which is the voice of the priesthood, or the Levites. Everybody understand where we're going here, or at least my perspective on where we're going here. So we're in Micah 3, 4. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his faith from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. What's going to happen, obviously, is at some point here, you're going to be up to your hips in hairy Assyrians or hairy Babylonians. And at that point, they're going to turn around and cry to God, but God is not going to listen because the prophet has warned them and they have not amended their ways. Verse 5, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing in their mouths. These are people who prophesy for profit, profiting prophets. One of the things that we said last time, and I don't know if we said it in this venue, and we got a couple of new folks, so I'll very quickly say it. Prophets in Israel were tough duty because what would happen is a prophet would wander into the king and it would dress him down And if the king didn't like what he said, the king would probably have him beaten, killed, or thrown in jail. And the question is, why that? Because the guy's speaking for God, right? Well, if you remember the case of Moses with Korah's rebellion, Moses is a prophet. So in Korah's rebellion, Moses stands in front of Korah's tent and he says, if I am not your man, God, these men will die a normal death. But if I am your man, the ground is going to open up and swallow them all alive. And the ground goes, and they all are down. So the prophet is able to use the power of God sometimes unwisely. But a prophet has that power. So, for example, Elisha, when you got a bunch of hooligans harassing him and teasing him for being a bald-headed guy, you know, go up, you bald pate. What he does is whistles up a bear and has a bear attack him. So a prophet is not a mouthpiece for God. A prophet is an agent for God. And the difference between a mouthpiece and an agent is an agent has freedom to use his power in a way that he thinks ultimately is to the benefit of his principle, but he isn't following a script. So as I say, when a prophet comes in and says something a king doesn't like, the king will rough him up and get him to say something else because the prophet's voice has power. So what's happening here is you have prophets who are using their power and authority for, again, their own enrichment. So instead of listening to God and saying what God says, what they're doing is they are using the power that they have to speak on their own. And if you pay them well, they speak well. And if you don't pay them well, they speak poorly. That's what this says. Verse 6. Therefore, it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers will be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. Because they have misused their gift, it is going to be taken away from them. Verse 8, but as for me, me in this case is Micah, 
But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sins. So what you've got is a bunch of prophets that have been using their prophecy for profit. God is going to turn that off. But Micah is saying, I got the real deal, and I'm going to continue to speak, and my words are true because I am going to lay out the transgression of Israel so that Israel will have the opportunity to correct itself. Now, Israel is not going to correct itself, so they're going to go into exile. But occasionally, and when we studied Haggai, and don't think Haggai was a great example, a better example is Jonah, where Jonah goes to Nineveh. And he says, 40 days and you're all toast. And Nineveh hears that and says, whoa. And everybody from the king on down put on sackcloth, sat in ashes, and fasted, and God relented. That's the ideal thing when a prophet comes to your town. If a prophet comes to your town and says, you guys are screwing up badly, the object of the exercise is you want to stop what you're doing, repent, change your ways, and then the prophecy doesn't happen. So Nineveh was not destroyed for another hundred years because they listened to Jonah. Not to belabor this, but Yeshua, when he comes and starts his ministry, what's his signature word? Repent. And when you get to Matthew chapter 13, where the Pharisees attribute the works that Yeshua does to Beelzebub, at that point Yeshua says to himself, They ain't going to listen. And so what Yeshua then does is after chapter 13 in Matthew, he switches from plain speak to parables. And his disciples says, what? How come you're speaking in parables? And he says, it's given to you to understand, but not to them, because their eyes are closed and their ears are closed and they're going into exile. But I've still got some stuff i got to say to them, so I am going to say it in parables so they cannot understand it and they cannot take action because they had their chance and they blew it. So we're going to go over now to Isaiah 29. Remember Isaiah and Micah are contemporary. Isaiah 29 starting in verse 9. And what Isaiah is doing here, and and many of you have heard this, it will be review, is describing the process of exile. So Isaiah 29.9. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. So first thing is happening is shutting off vision and shutting off your powers of reason. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep. He has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. Now, what just happened in Micah is Micah is saying the same thing as Isaiah is saying, but in different words, which is I'm going to take prophecy out of your mouth and I'm going to take wisdom away from you. Isaiah says the same thing here. He's going to close your eyes, your eyes are the prophets, your spiritual eyes, cover your heads, reason, wisdom, and those are the seers, the wise men. Verse 11. And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. 
when men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. And what that means is, I'm going to take away prophecy, I'm going to take away wisdom, I'm going to take away reason, so that you are not even going to be able to understand the plain words of Scripture. Going on to the end of Isaiah 29, he backs all that out. So at some time in the future, all that is going to be backed out. I am of the opinion, and this is Johnnyology, it is not Scripture, it is just my opinion, that for 2,000 years, we have been dealing with a closed book. That's the reason you have so many denominations of Christianity and Judaism, is because everybody reads the book and has a different interpretation. So you've got vast swaths of Christianity who are actively hostile to the Torah. You've got other vast swaths of Christianity who believe that everything is predetermined. They're the Calvinists. And they all can read the same book and come up with different understandings and interpretations. We're all reading the same book. If we wanted to, we could all read the same translation. But they come up with radically different interpretation than what I am suggesting, genealogy, not scripture, what I am suggesting is that's because as part of the process of the exile of Israel, the book got closed. It is my prayer that we are in a time now when the book is being reopened. And that, by the way, happens at the end of Isaiah 29. You have a chiasm. You've got the closing at the beginning and you've got the opening at the end. When you're going into exile, God turns off a bunch of stuff uh, because you're going. And that's what Yeshua did. That's what Isaiah did. That's what Micah is talking about here. Finally gets it right up to here. Okay, you're going into exile. And exile in God's economy is therapeutic. It is not punishing, although people suffer. The idea is he sends you someplace that will correct the problem that caused you to go into exile. You guys want to worship idols? We'll send you to idol central. You're going to go to Babylon. And in the case of Yeshua, the rabbis say that their current exile is a function of too many scorpions in one bottle. They couldn't get along. Baseless hatred is what they call it. Among Jews, Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, Boethians, all the various sects of Jews couldn't get along. And if you read the New Testament, you see it. You can see all the politics where you got people wanting to kill Yeshua. Why? Within both Christianity and Judaism, you have got numerous sects, all of which believe different things, do different things, and all read the same set of scriptures. And I'm suggesting to you that process is being described here in Isaiah 29. We could all be reading Yeshua's original words written in red, the way he spoke them in King Jimmy, and we'd still have the same problem. Back to Micah. I'm done with Isaiah for right now. We're back to Micah. Micah 3.9. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Everybody know who he's talking to here and what his opinion of them is. He's talking to the leaders of Israel, whether they be bureaucrats, Levites, priests, or nobles, and including prophets 
and Sears, who he has included in this batch. So everybody who has a position of leadership or respect or authority, he's talking to here. Verse 11, its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. This should take you to Jeremiah. If you go to Jeremiah, one of the things Jeremiah is saying is the same pathology exists and these people are pointing to the temple and saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. As long as we got the temple in our midst and the presence of God in the temple, we are going to be safe. And what Jeremiah says to them is, you have turned the house of God into a den of robbers. And it is no longer a place where you go for repentance. It is a place where a robber band goes to be away from the sheriff and hide out. And you can't use my house that way. Micah is saying exactly the same thing. When these corrupt officials say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. What they are doing is they are treating God casually. And if you go to Leviticus, what God says there is when you go to the land, you're going to get fat, you're going to do well because I'm going to bless your socks off. And what's going to happen is you are going to start taking me for granted. And you are going to attribute to luck, to your own hard work, to whatever, the gifts and blessings that I am giving you. And when that happens, when you start treating me casually, I'm going to treat you casually, which is to say I am going to withdraw my hand from you. And if you continue to walk contrary to me or treat me casually, I'm going to continue to back off. And what's going to happen is it's going to really be bad. So what Micah is describing here in verse 9, 10, and 11 is the elites of Israel, kings, prophets, priests, Levites, judges, Sears, all of those guys, the intelligentsia, if you will, of Israel, have begun to treat God casually. They have taken him for granted. So they are doing whatever they want to do, and they're saying, well, to use a modern example, God knows my heart. Grace will cover me. That's the attitude that is prevalent here. And what the prophet is saying, uh, you guys don't get it. That isn't going to happen. And by the way, I will gently suggest that a lot of the Sunday church who has that attitude is also going to become surprised. Verse 12. Therefore, because of you, who's you? The leadership. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house of the Lord a wooded height, which is to say it is going to go back to nature. You are not going to even be able to tell that there was a city there or a temple there because the destruction is going to be so vast. Of course, the destruction of Israel happened in two stages. Stage one is the Assyrians took out the northern kingdom, and then stage two is Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar took out the southern kingdom. So this happened. If all of this is happening because of the leaders, are the people doing really good? Well, several things. Thing one is, as I am very fond of saying, Daniel was a righteous man. 
But Daniel grew up in Babylon. He was among those who were taken away, even though he himself was righteous. Furthermore, what the corrupt leadership is doing is giving corrupt people an excuse for doing what they want to do. What happens is if you have corrupt leaders who do not enforce the law properly and do not uphold standards properly, people then say, well, I guess I don't have to worry about that one. And the people then become corrupt also. The whole purpose of reading this stuff is to realize that people don't change. The only reason they have any power is because corrupt people support them. People don't change. And so the pathologies that you see here in Israel and the things that cause those pathologies are endemic to every society. And our society has been around for 250 years, and that's about the half-life of most empires. The idea that we have become corrupt is not particularly surprising at all. Because God himself set Israel up. They don't even have the excuse of, well, we invented it ourselves. No, God set it up. And they still managed to corrupt it. How much more so is a government that we set up ourselves, you know, sort of roll our own? Well, ah, we'll try this. Which is where socialism comes and all those kinds of things is, ah, we'll try it this way. And when we do it, it'll be, people are human. People will do what people do. And the only thing that the United States can do right now, in my humble opinion, is get on their face and plead for mercy. And again, that's the point of all of this. When you have the elites who set the standards lose those standards and start doing corrupt things, that trickles down and everybody starts doing it. And that's what's going on here. That's why the whole nation goes into exile because they've all become corrupt. And that's what we're dealing with here. In fact, I read an article. Apparently, upwards of 30% of women under 25 identify themselves as lesbians. What's happened is we have divided sexually. And you've got, on the one hand, young women who have figured it's easier to be with another young woman than to mess with these guys, and guys who say, I don't want anything to do with them. And you've got what are called incels, which are involuntarily celibate. So you've got a whole group of guys that are off not wanting to have anything to do with women and a whole bunch of women that don't want to have anything to do with guys. That's not good. Guys and girls are really difficult. It takes a lot of work to get along. But it's mostly worth it. But a lot of people are seeing that, no, it doesn't seem worth it. And the culture reinforces that. And that's coming down from our elites. As I said, probably on Shabbat, the elites have resources and money that when they go into perversion and corruption, they don't suffer the same way that somebody who is poor goes into corruption. In other words, if you fall into all these perversions and you've got a lot of resources, you can buy your way out of it, you can you know, do all sorts of things, and you can go and live a life in perversion. The lower classes can't do that because they don't have the resources. So when they follow and try and behave like the upper classes, what happens is the place goes to ruin and collapses, which is what we're seeing right now. They say the 
movies, media, and all that kind of stuff give you windows into the corruption of the literati, and people who don't have those kind of resources try and live the same way, and it takes them to ruin. Shama